This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Geraldine Dude with you, and a big welcome to Extra. It's just lovely to have you company each Monday. It's now my pleasure to introduce a new Saturday Extra feature that we'll, uh, we'll bring to you this time for the next 10 weeks, certainly. Guess the Game Changer, where we pose you a quiz question about a big character who influenced the course of international affairs during the last 80 to 100 years and whose legacy remains in one form or other. Now, I'll give you the clues shortly. And the first listener who correctly answers via our RN text line, that's 0418 226576. 0418 They will be named the winner at the end of the program. No prize, just the honour and the glory of being well-informed, well observably, as you all are, of course. So, here are the clues. Who am I? I starred in both science and politics post-World War II. I became so upset about what I helped create together with my growing concern about human rights abuses in my country, that I decided to speak out loudly and often, even at great personal cost. I never gave up and I was eventually lauded with a Nobel Prize. Though I'm still controversial in my country, who am I? Start in both science and politics, both World War II, very upset about what uh, it helped create together with a growing concern about human rights abuses, decided to speak out loudly and often, never gave up, was eventually lauded with the Nobel Prize, though still controversial. Who am I? Now, we'll give you time to think, and the first listener who tells us the right answer will be named at the end of the program. Just your first name and area, if that's what you'd like. It's up to you. You can give us more if you like. <laughs> so we'll set you that. We thought it was a good sort of... Um, as I said, way to take our minds off some of the more um, difficult things of our time. But first to something of our time that you may or may not have quite grasped. Most of us who work are these days involved in a giant experiment right now about the way we work. We're lab rats to an extent, brokered by the pandemic, to see whether the systems we've known for, well, a few hundred years since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, will they endure? After the first few months of the pandemic, tremendous debate erupted on whether working from home affects productivity, and the jury is still really out. Out. But you may have heard this week's announcement about what's called multi-factor productivity dropping in Australia for the first time in a decade. Could it all be linked? Certainly it's turning into quite a debate around the world as researchers start to seriously contemplate COVID's ramifications for the world of work and not merely days at work versus days at home, but whether it augments financial and educational divides. To unpack it all, I'm pleased that Michael Brennan, the chair of the Productivity Commission, and Sue Williamson, a senior lecturer at the Human Resource Management at UNSW, could join us to um, flesh this out. Welcome uh, to you both. Hi, Geraldine. Um, Thanks, Geraldine. Michael Brennan, your Productivity Commission says that while the number of hours worked by employees uh, undertaking remote work has increased during the pandemic, output in the wider economy has decreased. Is there a link there? 
It could be, but it could be equally that that's just a function of the specifics of the pandemic, uh, the, the restrictions and the reduction in economic activity associated with that. The interesting question, I think, is as the pandemic recedes, how much of the newfound taste for working from home endures and what's going to be the implication if that's a new normal going on into the future? Uh, and so you're, you just think it's too early to say, do you? I think it's too early. I think the dust is still settling. I think there's plenty of reason to believe that working from home or increased remote working can be of significant value to employees and it could even be productivity enhancing. Certainly many workers feel that they're more productive at home. Opinions among bosses are a little more divided than that. But it's certainly a significant change. And I think when I reflect on significant changes in the labour market in my lifetime, like the rise of services and the reduction in manufacturing employment or the rise of computers or the rise of female workforce participation, all of these have been very, very dramatic changes in the labour market. But they've all taken decades to play out. And what's different here is we could see a very in the scheme of things, sudden and dramatic change in relation to increased rates of working from home. So it is potentially a significant shift. So how do you see it? I mean, if we've got people working longer, but they're producing less um, when, when they work from home, but whether that's the correct way to link them, what do you think? Yes, that's right. I think people don't have a good understanding of what productivity is, and they tend to think that if they work longer hours, that's increased productivity. So there needs to be more of a discussion around what productivity is and how it can be measured. And we know that it is extremely difficult to measure productivity, especially in industries that have knowledge workers. Um, it is just very hard to measure productivity rather than just output. Um, and there are so many variables around what productivity is and how it's influenced that it is hard to measure. But that aside, I think that the research shows that uh, productivity did increase during the pandemic, or at least there is a lot of research showing that workers and managers believe that their productivity increased during the during the pandemic. Uh, their productivity increased during the pandemic. That's mm. okay. Yes. Um, uh, the right setup, of course, is very important, as the McKinsey Group finds that the and this is why, why it takes it beyond just a sort of a simple matter, the potential for remote work is highly concentrated among highly skilled, highly educated workers in a handful of industries, occupations and geographies. Do you agree with that, Sue? Oh, absolutely. Yes, it's the knowledge workers that have the um, opportunity to work from home and employees who are doing lower level jobs, it's more difficult for them to work at home. Um, they might not have the right setup, the right equipment, but it is, it's, it's always been knowledge workers who have worked from home um, more than other workers and those involved in creativity um, tasks and who have more autonomy. And so that hasn't changed throughout the pandemic. Yes, there's an interesting sort of summary in The Atlantic talking about, because this is really quite a hot discussion in the US at the moment, as I know you both know. Uh, the Atlantic says the most likely immediate winners from remote work are those who are, in an economic sense, are already winning. Now, do you think that's a fair comment, Michael? 
I think it's probably a slightly more mixed story. I think it's true on average that the occupations that are most conducive to remote working tend to be higher paying, but it's not exclusively the case. There are some lower paying occupations that can also be done from home, including some clerical and administrative roles. In fact, prior to the pandemic, one of the most salient experiments in relation to remote working was in respect of a call centre in China that was run by a travel agent. And it did show an increase in productivity, interestingly. I think what's salient for high-end knowledge workers, though, is that technology is, if you like, pushing in two opposing directions. The technology of remote working has clearly improved and it's made feasible uh, remote working or working from home for a range of those workers. On the other hand, people talk a lot about the water cooler conversation, which is really a byword for the chance encounter or the mm. serendipitous exchange that occurs in a physically co-located setting like an office. And that, of course, is the feedstock for creativity and judgment and decision-making, all of which are increasingly important attributes in a modern knowledge-based economy. So if you like, the technological forces are pulling a little bit in, in opposing directions. And I think that's why it's such a challenge. And as you put it, we are in the midst of an experiment to see how different businesses and workers work that through. Indeed. I mean, there's quite a few aspects of this if we try to home in on it. Um, would you say, uh, to you first, Sue, employees' labour actually has more control now that there has been a shift in, in the power balance, which is quite significant to note, or do you not agree with that? I agree with that to a certain extent. I think that organisations are realising that they need to be able to offer remote work and that hybrid work is fast becoming a permanent feature of the landscape. And so they, they realise that they need to offer hybrid work to attract and retain employees. Um, and research has shown that up to 40% of employees are thinking about changing their jobs in the next year. And if that's the case, they're going to be looking for employees that will let them work in a hybrid working arrangement. So employees do have some power, um, but I think organisations are also, they're also cognizant that they want employees in the workplace. Um, they like to see people sitting there and as Michael says, it's, it facilitates knowledge sharing. So I think there's a lot of factors at play here. You are concerned that it could uh, end up being even more of a two-tiered workforce, aren't you? Yes, I am. And the research that's coming out is showing that women are preferring to keep working from home and men want to go back to the office. And if that's the case, that could lead to entrenched gender inequality because if you're not in the office, you're less visible. And if you're less visible, you get less um, promotion and career development activities. And so that could possibly entrench gender inequalities in the workplace. Um, and we just don't know. And this is going to take some time to play yeah. out. See, it's interesting in your in your work at the Productivity Commission's work, Michael, I noticed that um, the you, you note that the commute is on average about 60 minutes and long and that therefore, I'm just thinking of productivity now, that's um, theoretically uh, released for more for more productivity. Um, but there, there was more um, uh, interrupted work time. If, I think I've read this correctly, work time at home than at work. And employers should not underestimate, you say, the value of networking and uninterrupted work time on employee productivity. Yeah, so th certainly the commute is a very material 
issue for a lot of workers. And and when you think, think just do the thought experiment about what 60 minutes means in the context of a work day, it's a significant proportion of the time spent at work. And for many employees, that makes frees up significant time that can be valuably apportioned to other things. Um, some leisure, but a lot of um, domestic chores as well. Um, and uh, of course, some additional work. And that's part of the reason why we think it's it's such a, a significant change. I think the point about uh, the balance between working from home and working from the in the office is important because, as I said, those te- technological forces pull you in opposite directions. Mm. It's the reason why the hybrid model appears so appealing because it seems logical that doing some work in the office, some work at home is the right balance. But it's equally true that we don't know exactly how that will play out either because it too is a bit of an experiment and it could prove to be the case that the hybrid model is the easiest option to select but the hardest one to execute because it requires significant change on the part of managers and their employees to the way that work happens to mm. ensure that you're getting the best of both worlds. With some real coordination costs, you may, which was very interesting. Uh, and maybe just looking at the time, I might end with you, Sue, because I think the the productivity report says there are the welfare implications of the forced investment uh, in this change workplace are good, the welfare implications, even if the productivity implications are more ambiguous. So it is really... I mean, I wonder when we will know. What's your what's your guess about how this is all turning out? I think it will take a good couple of years. And just in, in relation to the point about commuting, the research has also found that people use that time that they save on commuting to do work, but that it can lead to long hours as well. And so there is a real danger of work family spillover um, and we need to watch for that. So I think it will play out over the next couple of years. I think organisations who were flexible prior to the pandemic will be leading the way and ones that weren't flexible and we're a bit resistant, I think they'll, they'll keep being resistant to working from home and hybrid working. Mm. And look, uh, in, in another program, we'll look at the particular impact on young people, which we, we just, there's just so many component parts of this story as to whether young people in particular, that's what the Atlantic suggests, have been one of the losers along with low-income earners. Look, thank you both very much indeed for speculating on this and we will invite you back. Thank you. Thanks, Geraldine. Thanks, Geraldine. Michael Brennan, the chair of the Productivity Commission, which brought out its report this week um, on productivity, and uh, Sue Williamson, a senior lecturer in human resource management at the University of New South Wales. Your thoughts, most welcome. I work from home often during the night, says one of our listeners, yes. Well, uh, coming up here on Saturday Extra, we dive into a modern conundrum, uh, another one. How do we balance new police technologies with our right to privacy? Last week we spoke about Operation Ironside, the joint sting operation between the AFP and the FBI, which was enabled by Australian legislation that gives law enforcement particularly strong powers to access encrypted messages. It's raised a question I think a lot of liberal democracies have been grappling with lately, how to strike the right balance between the powers that police need to do their jobs 
as technology becomes more sophisticated, and our own rights to privacy. It's certainly a question that's been bothering The Economist's US digital editor, John Fassman, and it's prompted him to write a book about it. It's titled, We See It All, Liberty and Justice in the Age of Perpetual Surveillance. And he joined me earlier to tell us more about it. Thank you. It's good to be back. John, why did you choose to focus on policing and changes there specifically? I chose the police because I, I thought that if I chose to look at the NSA or an intelligence agency, and I reported that these agencies had the power to tap your phones or follow you surreptitiously, they had drones or something, you would sort of shake your head and say, yeah, well, we knew that. Whereas the police are a very visible, ubiquitous representative of state power. And what I found is that they have virtually all the same capacities as these larger agencies. They may not have the ability to do it at scale, They may not have the ability to do it over quite the same geographic reach, but they can do more or less what these other agents can do. And I thought it was important that people knew that, first of all. And I thought that their familiarity made it a good way to describe to people exactly what these technologies do in a way that they would understand, in the way that it would be vivid to them. Now, as you know, whenever this is discussed, typically the answer is, settle down, those who do nothing wrong have nothing to fear. You know, did you factor that into your thinking? Well, I heard that a lot as I was reporting the book and talking to people. Um, I think that is a perfectly natural thing to say. I think most people think of themselves as good law-abiding citizens. And if they're good law-abiding citizens, the police are on their side, so what's the big deal? But I think the more I looked into exactly what the police are able to collect about us, what they're able to know, and I think more importantly, how long they're able to store it and how little controls there are over who gets to see it, the more worried people became. You don't have to be a criminal to not want the state to know everywhere you go and everyone you see and everyone you text. Mm. I think there's a quite an interesting line in your book. You, you say, we risk creating a society where there is no space for disobedience. Everything can be seen, heard and punished and nothing is forgotten. Well, I think there are a couple of things I meant by that. Number one is... There's an odd tension in what people want in society, especially in liberal democracies, right? We want the laws to be fairly enforced, and we want people to have respect for the laws. On the other hand, do we want to be prosecuted every time we cross a street somewhere other than the crosswalk? Do we want to be prosecuted every time we may we may be a little loud in public? I don't think we do, but the architecture of this surveillance state that we're in the process of creating makes it so that that option is available to any agency of the state at any time. Do you think there's been a tendency in the US and elsewhere to to jump on these new technologies, no doubt with good intentions, is that what you're really saying, but without thinking through the consequences? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And that's a big danger. And that's one of the big things that I hope this book sort of gets people thinking about. There is, first of all, a very natural tendency. You know, I have my own set of gadgets too, to be dazzled by what's new and by the capacity of what's new and to think only of the benefits of what's new without thinking about the costs and the downside and the risks. And so I think that's particularly true or it has been true when it comes to the sorts of surveillance technologies that the police departments have taken in. Every police department wants to be better at solving crime. And it's very easy for a vendor to say, look, this camera, this license plate reader, this facial recognition tool will make it easier for you to solve more crime. That's a very compelling sales pitch, right? But what I hope people think about in police departments 
in in city councils and local governments and really just citizens who are concerned about how they're policed. I hope people think about the downside, the detriment, as well as the benefits of any any of these forms of surveillance technology. It is tricky though, isn't it? I can imagine listeners thinking, oh, well, you know, I, I'd prefer the benefit of the doubt stay with the police, if you know what I mean, rather than the, the citizen who wants to have a little bit more license. No, I think the benefit of the doubt should stay with the police. And I think this, this my book does not argue that we should ban the police from any technology they think will help them do their job better. I am not, this is not an anti-technology book. What I do think we need to do though, before we give police powers, is think really hard about the limits we want to set on those powers. Mm. So if a police department feels that it needs automatic license plate readers, for instance, because it helps them find cars that might have been stolen, find cars that might have been used in crimes, by all means, police departments should have that capacity. But what about the 99% of cars that aren't involved in crimes, that haven't done anything wrong? Should they also have the capacity to store the information they gather about those cars indefinitely with, with no limits over who gets access to them? I don't think they do. Mm. So I think it's not a question of denying police any piece of technology. It is a question of setting limits over how they use it, making them think about how they use it, making them disclose how they use it, and setting penalties for misuse. I'd like to jump yeah. now to facial recognition technology, which you say could pose a more dire and lasting threat than any other technology. Why so? Well, because with other technologies, so with automatic license plate readers, for instance, they capture license plates on cars, but we don't have to take our cars anywhere we can walk. You know, the, the devices that, that trick cell phones into connecting them and revealing their information, we can leave our phones at home, but we can't leave our faces at home. Our faces are who we are. And if we allow police to use facial recognition however they want, in whatever capacity they want, in real time, then we really do build a society where we can be tracked and followed and monitored everywhere we go. And let me just tell yeah. listeners that uh, John Fassman is my welcome guest, The Economist's US digital editor. And we're talking about new technologies and how they actually do move into spaces like policing, let alone the intelligence agencies, which I suppose we're all much more used to. Like drones, for instance, John, uh, also starting to be used to give police eyes in the sky. How have they been used in the US so far? Because I think you have concerns about this too. I do. There is a program, there's a company called Persistent Surveillance Systems. Their proposition is they have a couple of drones and they will put low resolution cameras on them and then set the drones to fly in circles over a set swath of the city, essentially indefinitely. They can they come down to you know refuel and another one replaces them. So it essentially puts an entire chunk of the city under, as the name says, persistent surveillance. This was tried in Baltimore. St. Louis is thinking about using it. And what it effectively does is it gives police a time machine, right? So when there is a crime reported in the section of the city that is under persistent surveillance, then the police can go get the footage, look at the crime, where it happens, and then rewind the tape so they can see where the suspects came from, where they live, how they got to the scene. So it basically lets the police rewind time and see who did what. That's all to the good. The problem is it also puts an entire swath of city, tens of thousands of people in some cases, under permanent surveillance when they're not suspected of having done anything wrong. Mm. I mean, this is, again, it's a challenge because you, you're saying that some of the technologies are marketed as trying to overcome some of the biases that affect justice systems in America and in Australia. Um, 
you worry that reliance on things like drones and algorithms could have the yeah. opposite effect. I mean, I'm clearly thinking about someone like the George Floyd uh, instance. So why would it turn na- nasty? Well, I think when it comes to algorithms, what I wrote about, I, I wrote about predictive policing algorithms. And what these are is they are programs that ingest an enormous amount of historical crime information in a city. So what crime was committed where? In some cases, what was the weather like? Were there any external events? You know, was there a concert letting out? What time did the bars close? It takes an enormous amount of geospatial and crime data, and it uses it to say to the police, look, based on all of these factors, this area of 500 square meters, this is where you should concentrate your resources today. This area appears to be at higher risk of crime than other areas. So mm-hmm. they're not just, the police aren't just saying go to this neighborhood. They're saying go to this specific block, drive up and down this block and keep your eyes peeled. Now, that has not convicted anyone, right? Nobody is under arrest. Nobody is being sent to jail because of it. But the concern is that historical crime data is not an objective record of all crimes committed in a city, right? It's a record of crimes that the police know about. And if police have a tendency to sort of over-police in America and over-police non-white neighborhoods and prosecute nuisance crimes, that is crimes like, uh, you know, loitering, jaywalking, Mm -hmm. public drinking, not things that people call the police for, but things that the police notice because they're there. If these algorithms take in all that data, then what they will do is essentially calcify these biases in the name of objectivity. An algorithm trained on biased data will learn to replicate that bias. That's that's what I'm concerned about. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because you know you could you could see that it could become very oppressive, but it's also possible. I can imagine some minorities might say, "Well, actually, it's it's settled things down." I mean, we have this debate in in Australia um, as to how oppressive you are in order to protect the most vulnerable members of minority communities, like women and children. I saw that when I was reporting on the aftermath of of George Floyd's killing, the voices that were loudest in calling for defunding the police were very often not the people who lived in the communities that would be most affected by it. I certainly met far more uh, African-Americans in Minneapolis who were very wary about defunding the police. And I think that's true nationally. I think a lot of people in communities that are over-policed don't want the police defunded. They don't want the police disbanded. They don't want less police. They want better police, better trained police, more responsive police, police who perhaps are not so harsh when it comes to nuisance crimes, but who devote more time into sort of the root causes of crime in these communities, into into solving serious crimes. Mm. Well, let, let's go there, because throughout the book, you do stress the onus is on us as citizens of liberal democracies to prevent the emergence of surveillance states, which, which have all of these emphases that you think um, are really concerning. Realistically, what can we do to prevent this kind of overreach? I think the first thing we can do is speak out as often as we can. If we, if we are concerned about how we are policed, show up at town council meetings, at city council meetings, and start asking questions. If you think something doesn't sound right, speak up. I think that that one of the most inspiring things I found was in Oakland, California. Uh, The story starts there in 2014 after the Edward Snowden revelation just came out. And the Port of Oakland had created this enormous interlinked surveillance system to keep the port more secure, where to have feeds from license plate readers, cameras, all of these things that sort of link up security systems. And citizens there had some worries about it. So they just started showing up at city council meetings and asking questions. And eventually, 
the Oakland City Council created what's called the Oakland Privacy Commission. And this is a standing body attached to the city council. And its job is whenever a city agency, and it's most often in this case, police or fire, whenever they want to buy a piece of technology that has the potential to store a citizen's data, then it is the job of the Privacy Commission to make sure that this agency has thought about how they want to use it, has set usage policies around it, have said how they're going to safeguard citizens' privacies and create penalties for misuse of it. So when I went out there the first time, I thought I would find a privacy commission and a police department that were at, that were at each other's throats, when in fact I found exactly the opposite, right? The police department says, look, everybody comes to us with these shiny new technologies and they tell us they're going to save the world, they're going to make crime disappear. And this forces us to think about what they actually do, whether it's worth the money, what we're going to use it for. The privacy commission said citizens now have a voice to be heard and know that the police will hear them. So it sort of forces these groups that have different interests, necessarily different interests, society can't survive mm -hmm. without either of them, but necessarily different interests to sit in a room and think about what they're doing together and not talk to the TV cameras and not get angry on Twitter and not sloganeer, but sit and think and work. I think that's an extremely inspiring vision of how, of how government can work for people. Mm. Uh, look, very interesting and thought-provoking, John. Um, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to be here. John Fassman, The Economist's US digital editor, the author of We See It All, published by Scribe. And if you'd like to listen to a longer version of this interview where John spoke about how China is using surveillance technologies, particularly in the Xinjiang region, that'll be available on our website or wherever you get your podcasts uh, if, you, if, you just, if it's piqued your interest even more. Now, we, we have an answer. We have a winner. I will reveal at the end the end of the show to our guest the game changer thank you very much very interesting possibilities but we we do have a winner now next up here on saturday extra walking no pardon me a student's view of the university crisis You'll know over the past 12 months or so, we've been covering uh, the impact of the pandemic on universities. Many, of course, were already struggling, but COVID has plunged them into crisis. And each is trying to deal with that in different ways. We're trying to bring you from time to time some of the specific plans being hatched for cuts to make it all a bit less abstract. At Sydney University, for instance, there's talk of ditching two departments, studies in religion and theatre and performance studies which would be bad luck indeed for Alana Bowden, who wants to do a PhD across both those two departments. Instead, she's been campaigning to save them. We thought you might like a personal snapshot of what's at stake as universities are forced to close some doors. So a big welcome, Alana. Thank you, Geraldine. Good morning. Thanks uh, for having me. You're a bit of a star student, aren't you? You've just been awarded first class honours in the university medal. <laughs> Um, uh, thank you. Um, rest assured, I'm blushing. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's been a bittersweet experience in so much as it's been amazing to have the, the accolade and have my work recognised. But at the same time, as you just pointed out, I am beyond frustrated because instead of celebrating and applying for my PhD in theatre and performance studies and studies in religion, I've spent the last two months fighting to save my departments. And, and you've come to the uni as a mature age student. I mean, really, this story has everything after running pubs, <laughs> <laughs> after running pubs in your family's business, among other things. So, I mean, that must be immensely satisfying and yet immensely frustrating. 
Yeah, so um, I like to say that as a mature age student, I'm older, not wiser. Um, but I worked in hospitality, which was my family business, but also I worked creatively for the better part of 10 years. I worked with the Royal Shakespeare Company in the, the Melbourne Comedy Festival and also in community theatre in the Czech Republic. So I've always been interested in people and um, the ways that people come together and create meaning through creative experience. Yes, and your honours thesis, combining these two disciplines of religious studies studies and performance studies. I think you see obvious overlaps. What you just said suggests that. The sacredness of performance, I think, is what you're focusing on. Yeah, so um, I'm particularly interested in the way secular arts practice could for some be understood as a sacred experience. So I used the case study of the Mona's Dark Mofo Festival as a way to um, sort of pull apart and really question the way that we we look at things like uh, art and performance. We're happy to say that's the magic of theatre or, you know, the the power of performance, but I don't think that we really engage with these terms in, in a true deep sense of the meaning of the word. I'll just tell us a little more there. Um, You're happy to go into that area of sacredness, which a lot of people in the arts won't do. Yeah, I think especially coming into performance studies from religion, as soon as I started talking to my supervisor about magic and the sacred, she sort of looked at me a little bit skew if, but um, I think with with MoFo in particular, it, at the end of the day, it's a secular arts festival, but it takes a variety of different religious traditions or spiritual practices. So you get, you know, Indigenous Australian um, spiritual practice, Balinese Hinduism, European paganism, and of course, uh, Christianity. And it blends it all together and puts it into this arts festival that relies on immersive experience. So unlike, say, going to an art gallery and looking at a painting, it requires the audience member to really engage with the work and to complete it. And so what I'm interested in is not so much the static art object as the experience when you engage with it and and what it means by um, participating, walking around, experiencing it. And so, yeah, I want to look at how we can engage with the sacred in the full sense that comes with the term. Which you think is evocative of ritual. That's the whole point. (laughs) Yeah. So I think when we say, you know, we can talk about the ritual of one's morning coffee or the ritual, you know, of going to the grocery store. But I think when I talk about ritual in, in studies and religion, we're looking at something that is effective, that it um, that it creates meaning and, and has a power to it. And so when I talk about the sacred, I guess I'm not talking about God, although that can be included in somebody else's experience, um, but I'm talking about our experiences and our connection with others. And I think that art and the arts more broadly are a a really clear place that um, that these experiences can shape and give our lives meaning and purpose. Now, a cynic might wonder what the point of all of this <laughs> exploration is. I mean, what would you say to them? What value does it bring? Um, I guess, you know, my mother's asked me the same question. She says she doesn't understand, but she's proud of me nonetheless. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Good I guess, mother. I know. Um, I guess the thing for me is that I feel like it, it's doubly in in education and also in the arts when we're locked in these systems of for-profit models. So when you have education for profit, arts treated as a luxury, I think the experience of creativity or learning secondary. And so what matters if it makes money. And so what I want to do is to develop a way of talking about and arguing for the value of art and creativity that's able to speak outside of economic terms. And so I want to use the concept of the sacred as a way of uh, circulating a 
form of of capital and experience that enriches and shapes and gives our lives meaning. And it doesn't necessarily have to be commodifiable for it to matter. Mm. Now, it's not yet clear, is it, if Sydney Uni will go ahead with cutting your two departments, and and I note you work as a research assistant in the Department of Studies of Religion, so that job would be directly affected as well, wouldn't it? But let's say it was simply a matter of restructuring, Uh which all organisations, after all, are required to do from time to time. Tell us about it here at the ABC. Could (laughs) Could you still do your doctoral thesis through different departments? I think short answer, of course. There's art history, there's uh, cultural studies, the Sydney College of the Arts. But I guess from just listening to what I've been talking about, I'm interested in the body and the way that the doing and the practice gives is a side of meaning, whereas these other disciplines might stand outside and, and look at. I want to stand inside and experience and what that sort of research means. And I mean, I know there are many other arguments being put forward in the mm. bid to save these departments, um, you know, that they punch above their weight in terms of costs and student numbers. And the wider performing arts communities madly, I understand, writing letters to the uni in support of theatre yeah, and performance studies. it's fantastic. So um, can you see any shifts? Uh, sometimes the very fight back induces quite significant changes in the people concerned. <laughs> can you see that? Um, I I think there's definitely a sense of solidarity. I think uh, the biggest issue is that um, we might be the first on the chopping block, but if these cuts are allowed to go ahead, we certainly won't be the last. I think it's a broader devaluation of the arts and humanities in general. Well, I mean, I do note as a final note that the uh, Sydney Uni Annual Report shows the uni actually did much better than expected financially last year. Yes, it did. (laughs) It did, had a surplus. And Mark Scott, the new Vice-Chancellor, former uh, Managing Director here, Um, Mm. he will earn $500,000 less than his predecessor, Michael Spence, who was paid $1.53 million last year, according to the Sydney Morning Herald. So you never know. Mm -hmm. Maybe there Uh, people are looking elsewhere, Alana. Well, I I think, you know, it's it's a positive start, but it's certainly one step in the path of many other options that, that should be taken instead of, you know, cutting what is in our university part of the strength of our arts faculties, the diversity of, of subjects and specialisation areas. Well, we'll follow with interest. Thanks indeed, Alana Bowden. Okay, thank you so much. And Alana is a prospective doctoral student in both studies of religion and performance studies at Sydney University. Uh, she also works uh, at the Department of Studies of Religion as a research assistant. And look, if you have specific stories, you know, that that uh, do indicate a broader story, we'd, we'd really be happy to hear from you. And as I said, we'll just sort of dip in and out uh, from time to time. Some of you are sending them to me over the text line now. Well, up next, walking and writing, there's quite a history of those two things combining. Just to get you into the mood of maybe the time of contemplation that you have getting in touch with nature, we're all told as a perfect antidote to, to being feeling somewhat uh, blah, uh, languishing a little bit um, due to pandemics and winter. The long history of women 
walking have been has been somewhat under the radar and especially women walking and writing about it. Kerry Andrews, a senior lecturer in English literature at Edge Hill University in Lancashire, loves walking as much as she loves words. And she's written an engaging book called Wanderers, a history of women walking. The trail, she writes, is a powerful agent of change. I had to talk to her. Kerry Andrews, welcome to Saturday Extra. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. You yourself are no gentle ambler, Kerry. The inside flap of this book has a picture of you scaling a rock face, uh, grinning from ear to ear, and it looks a very long way down. It was it was a wonderful day out, actually. Um, it looks more dramatic than it was. It was um, actually a very gentle rock climb. It wasn't even really a rock climb. It was somewhere between walking and using a little bit of your hands. And it was up um, the face of a mountain called the Mountain of the Thunderbolt, which again sounds quite dramatic, but uh, was just this wonderful mountain on the west coast of Scotland. And there's a, a very boring trod that you can take up the mountain, which goes up this really steep, grassy slope. And we saw people that day going up there looking very miserable or you can go up the scrambles of this ridge and my friend Ewan who um, walks with me a lot took me up this ridge walk which was much more dramatic as you can see in the picture looking down at the town below us looking like it's a million miles away but it was just huge fun and the sun was out and it was early spring and it was just everything was right with that walk which is why I look like an absolute loon uh, <laughs> grinning from ear to ear as you say. <laughs> and you are a member of Mountaineering Scotland just to sort of let listeners know a little more about about your gameness um, yes, though it's open to everybody. And I think one of the things that I've found throughout my walking is that, yes, I've been up some big mountains. But if you saw me, I just had a baby three months ago, so I'm definitely not in peak condition. But everybody is able to get up into some sort of walk. And Mountaineering Scotland is there to encourage as many people as possible into the hills and mountains in Scotland. So it's a, a very open society. And the, the groups that I encountered uh, when I moved to Scotland and that I'm part of uh, now are very, very inclusive. So it's not about doing the epic stuff all the time. It's about increasing people's confidence, making people feel like they know what they're doing in the hills. And people have been so supportive of me throughout my walking uh, career. It sounds too grand a word, but I've had a huge amount of help from some very kind people all the way through. Gosh, aren't you lucky? That's a wonderful story. You are particularly interested in writers who walk. And you say the sense of the male writer who does a lot of walking is well embedded in our consciousness, but not so much female writers. Remind us, if you would please, of the male walkers before we quickly, before we go on to the women. Sure. Um, yeah, there's this, um, this sort of tradition that arises in the late 18th, early 19th century that sort of centres around um, the Lake District in England. Um, people like William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge who are living there and then they go off into the hills and they compose and they write about how they compose their epic works on these walks. And this sort of mythology starts to build up into the 19th century and, and later that walking and writing go together and that there's this sort of epic walking that leads to epic, inspirational writing. And, and then people come along and inherit those sorts of ideas. And you can trace that all the way through into the 20th and into the 21st centuries. So I'm thinking of Robert McFarlane's 2012 book. Yes, I've, um, I've interviewed ways. him on those. 
Yeah, and, and it's a wonderful book. It's a very beautiful lyrical book. And the way in which he thinks of Edward Thomas and walks alongside Edward Thomas throughout that book is kind of typical of what I mean, is that there's that sort of fraternity, this brotherliness among male writers when they look back to these male walker writer forebears. And I think it has become a little bit incestuous. It's also misrepresentative of the history of walking. How so? Because you mean there are, there's much more variety. It's not all that epic as that sort of egocentric notion that you're suggesting. And the women are there, obviously. Yeah, all of the, absolutely all of the above, but most particularly because women are there and they are there right from the very beginning. So you've got William Wordsworth, you know, wandering up all the fells of the Lake District. You've got Samuel Taylor Coleridge. 180,000 miles, he says. Exactly, 180,000 miles. You've got Coleridge who, in, who coins the phrase mountaineering. So they're right at the beginning, but at exactly the same time, you've got Wordsworth's sister Dorothy, who in 1818 sets off up Scarfell Pike by accident. But it's one of the first, it is the first documented account, probably the first account by a woman, and maybe one of the first ascents of that mountain at all. And she writes this beautiful account of it in a letter that she sent, in a couple of letters actually, that she sends to various friends, and when she talks about how they thought they were heading up the highest mountain, it was Scarfell, but actually they couldn't reach it they, they knew they couldn't reach it before it became dark it was October and, the, and it wasn't quite the daylight length they needed so they went up Scarfell Pike instead thinking it was a, a lesser mountain only later finding out that actually it was the highest of them all and they have this picnic at S Cause and they have this wonderful excursion and when Dorothy gets to the summit yes she notices that there's all this grandeur that she can see all these you know from Yorkshire all the way through to Scotland yes she notices that but the attention of her eye is actually drawn to this ancient life that's existing on the rocks on the summit it's a very bouldery um, bare summit it looks but her eyes identifies all this rich teeming life and the color words that she uses this place is so vibrant so mm. energized and so ancient and the richness of that account is it's, it's just fantastic but those sorts of accounts you know women are, are there walking these things but they don't necessarily write in the sorts of genres that are appreciated are published she doesn't ever publish that account it's only in letters oh i see it's only in letters yeah but they're there it's easy to find but all the literature of mountaineering and and walking seems to just assume that women couldn't or women didn't or women wouldn't want to but there are all these rich accounts so you know that that fraternity becomes as as, as soon as I started finding these women's accounts this fraternal sort of relationship a sorority (laughs) yeah it it just it just there is actually a sorority Mm. and it just became incre- I just got increasingly annoyed that people were ignoring these wonderful works of mountain literature. Yeah, well, of course, that happens a lot. Now, for complete contrast, Anais Nin, a hundred years later in the early 20th century, she loved to walk the streets of Paris and New York. And for her, there's an inexorable overlap between walking and writing. Both are solitary pursuits, but both bring fellowship. I found this really charming. Yes, I, I think um, Nin's writing about walking, is, it was really challenging to what I thought about city walking as well, that there's an, a power there, both creative for Nin, but also sexual, that if I had walked in cities, I'd been aware of myself in that environment. But she seems to be so confident and distant. She's somehow there wandering above what's going on. She's just observing. She's not participating. This sort of ethereal presence that weaves in and out of people's lives 
archives and then notes it all down. When I was reading her diaries and her journals, it was just a, an extraordinary way of seeing cities that I know, but mm. had never walked around with those sorts of thoughts in mind. She's an extraordinarily gifted describer, I think, of, of the possibilities of city walking. Yes. Um, and, you know, you, there's a range of others. Um, Virginia Woolf, a city walker, mm. always been so fascinated with her, wrote a, what her walks let into her imagination. You've got Cheryl Strayed. She walked 1,100 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail to recover her damaged identity and forge brutally a new body. I mean, it is, it is very... It's both bracing and inviting. I wonder for you, if you think about this as a sort of a summary, throughout the 300-year period you cover... For women, is walking an accessible way, I want to ask you, of pushing limits and setting physical goals and reconnecting with what matters most is, and sort of getting away from, from the usual expectations? Is that what you think sort of motivates or animates a lot of these women? I, I certainly think it's present for a lot of the women that I talk about. And I think it's what you described there, this, the accessibility of walking. I think that's also what makes it continually attractive to women who make up large numbers of, of walking societies. That I think it's available to a lot of people and it's a way of moving outside the domestic role, it's a way of having time to yourself, it's a way of being in a different environment that I think as a woman who walks now, I think that's one of the strongest ways in which these writers' work resonates with me, is that accessibility. And certainly a number of the women that I talk about were looking to escape somehow some sort of domestic situation abusive marriages Sarah Stoddart has that um, being involuntarily divorced by her husband found huge solace because she could control what happened to her when she was walking she couldn't control what was happening in her day-to-day -day life um, so walking and, and physically pushing the limits of what her body could do that was what she could determine would happen to her and I think that's that's also something that resonates with me too um, is that having control over what's happening to your body. For other women, it wasn't necessarily trauma. And Dorothy Wordsworth certainly wasn't looking to escape anything in particular, but she was conscious of the, the privilege that she was experiencing in being a woman who had the leisure time, the material resources to be able to walk for pleasure. So that sense of, you know, I am able to access these experiences. So there's a range of reasons, I think, but for a lot of these women, why ever they set out, I think a lot of them found on the trail those sorts of senses mm. of release that, that you're talking about. I think you've got to come down to the Southern Hemisphere and write one here, because all of these are wonderful <laughs> Northern Hemisphere stories. Uh, Kerry Andrews can Congratulations and uh, thank you for joining us. No, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, Kerry is the author of Wanderers, A History of Women Walking, and it's published by Reaction Books. Well, time now to announce who the inaugural winner of the game-changing quiz was. And look, um, <laughs> it's not Robert Oppenheimer, Mark Oliphant, Joseph Rotblat, Roger Penrose, uh, Linus Pauling, Albert Einstein, Angela Merkel. It's none of those. It's Andrei Sakharov, the brilliant theoretical physicist closely involved with creating the first Soviet H-bomb in 1953. Then, a decade later, starting moves to limit the weapons via the Atmospheric Test Ban Treaty. Now, where he really changed his old world, uh, the old Soviet Union, was as an outspoken dissident and defender of human rights, which he helped make a central issue in superpower relations. 
He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1975, but he paid a high price personally with seven years in internal exile, though he ended up sitting in one of Russia's first parliamentary experiments in 1989. Um, And he is still rather controversial uh, in uh, in the Russian Federation. Now, the Saturday extra listener who hit the text line first within a minute <laughs> with the correct answer was John from Bathurst. So congratulations, John, and thank you to all of uh, all who have suggested all those different names, which has quite piqued my interest, I must say, um, to skill up on learning uh, about some of these great characters from the past who, as I said, leave a legacy to the present day. Um, now, if this has piqued your interest, you can go to the weekend edition of The Conversation with whom I've been collaborating or our own ABC News Online for a longer essay on Andrei, uh, Andrei Sakharov. Uh, they're up now, those articles, and we'll do that every week. We'll pose the question and then we'll have um, a, a longer um, uh, discussion about the person concerned. We have a great range <laughs> for you. I hope you agree. Um, I've cast around to ask people whom they might suggest, and we've had a sort of we've got a list of about twenty or more, and we've chosen ten for this particular season. So I do hope you enjoy them. Now, just a, mes- a message, by the way, from one of our listeners talking about the universities, and because uh, I've invited you to let us know if you have a particular story to tell that's specific about how your university is thinking about changing or downsizing. Uh, one of our listeners, Jennifer from Canberra. For your information, the ANU has reversed its decision to close the Eccles Institute of Neuroscience due to public pressure. So that's why this, I suppose, matters if people actually do speak out. And just another quick one that I can, from Con, about working from home. Last year, while I worked from home for six months, I made a point of surveying several dozen of our clients. What did they think? The majority enjoyed it, but didn't want to be doing it every day. It was a case of wanting to do it maybe one or two days a week. The downsides for many was they found they were working longer at home. I was surprised by the number who said they felt lonely. The majority also missed being able to discuss issues with colleagues or having a yarn uh, over coffee with others in the office. Another concern for them was what happens with new employees? How will they be able to be fully trained if the majority of staff are working from home? The above were some of the issues clients mentioned to me, and they were people working within insurance and law firms. Thank you, Con. And that's why, as I say, we'll come back to the issue particularly of young people Entering the workforce is certainly something that's become, I think, apparent um, at at the ABC as a concern. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.